Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 13. That's the chapter we have been in, and I want to look at, again, today, verses 14, 15, and 16. You know, I I always enjoy preaching on Sunday morning and spending time in the Bible together, but Thursday night uh, is probably, uh, I just, it's hard to pick which one I love the most, uh, because I enjoy them both. But what I really love about it is when, you know, the questions that, and you know how it works on Thursday night, I don't set up the questions, uh, and I don't even think that you do. The Holy Spirit of God does within you. But many times he'll bring up questions, and it'll be pointed directly where I'm going to go on Sunday. Now, most guys would look at that and say, wow, you know what, if I answer this tonight, then I won't have anything to preach on Sunday. First of all, I never have a problem finding something to preach on Sunday. But second of all, I think that really enhances uh, what I have to say. Because I can always, and I will today, go back on it uh, and make the point of references. And some of the points that you folks make on Thursday night really help accent the things that I want to say today. And uh, so I look at that as an absolute cohesion of the Holy Spirit of God uh, in all that we try to do together. Now, Proverbs chapter 13, verses 14, 15, and 16 says this. It says, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Then it says in verse 15, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgression is hard. Then the last verse says, Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge, but a fool layeth open his folly. Now, Father, help us today as we come to your word. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us. And we ask your blessings upon it today. And we give this time to you, Holy Spirit of God, that you may take it and give us uh, what we need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Now, I want to talk to you about today, out of this passage, the importance, the importance of laws in our lives. The Bible talks about the law of the wise. Uh, laws will form structure. Without any laws, there's never any structure. And you're going to see that. And I want to try to help you understand how this goes together. This is going to be a very, very great practical message uh, for us all today. You know, a while back I preached on the importance of balance. And uh, a church has to have a really good balance in, in three areas. It has to have in its preaching a good balance of doctrinal stuff. It's got to have a balance of historical. And it's got to have a balance of inspirational. And you find churches that are truly out of balance. You find Christians that are truly out of balance. You find uh, some people, some churches that all they want to focus on is history. And they're always going back. And, and history is very important. <coughs> But history alone will get you out of balance. You'll find some that they're very shallow and they, all they talk about is the inspirational side of things. And the inspirational side of things always give the illusion that if you're really in the inspiration, you're really godly and you're really spiritual. Not according to the law found in the Bible. You have to have doctrine. And that forms the balance. I don't know, and I've, and I've talked about this many, many times, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And the first thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine has to be the number one foundation by which any church is built on. You can have all the historical aspect you want. You can have some of the greatest practical inspiration material you want, 
But if it is not, if the historical and the inspirational is not grounded within the doctrinal, you don't have anything. That's from the law of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Doctrine has to be the foundation of any church. It has to be the foundation of your life. Then you build the other things into it. And I want to talk to you today about the importance of laws forming structure in our lives. The Bible says in verse 14 that the laws of the wise are a fountain of life. We want to, we want to talk about that in a little bit. Verse 15 says, a good understanding of laws giveth favor. Obviously, that in context, it'll be favor with God, but it's also favor and success in life. And then verse 16 says, a man who is prudent, prudent means to be cautious, careful, a man who does his dealings in life by knowledge, that would be the laws, that uh, he, he's always better off. And in the context, verse 14, uh, uh, we find, uh, in, excuse me, in the contrast, we find that in verse 14, uh, that uh, um, a fool will get caught in the snares of life and be destroyed because he's outside the laws. Uh, you know, we talk about a criminal who winds up going to prison or going to jail. We call him an outlaw. And he gets caught and goes to jail for what he does because he's outside the law. Well, for a Christian, for you and me, when we get outside these laws found in the Bible, then we're, we can have some trouble. Verse 15 says that that trouble will be he has a very hard time in life because his transgressions are against this law. Verse 16 says, and everybody will know it, uh, that he's a fool because his folly will be open and displayed to everybody. You know, when we talk about <clears throat> understanding God, my, 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 what a, <clears throat> what a subject that is to try to tackle. There's so many aspects to God, so many levels to God, so many dimensions to God. But if you want to put God in a, in, into one simple concept uh, and, and to better begin to understand him, God is a God of structure. God is a God of order. God is a God of patterns. And he, he operates by those patterns, by that order, by those laws, and he puts into play in the world and also in our Christian lives some absolute rules which the Bible says are laws. And I want to talk to you about them. You know, when God established the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he established it on the basis of the law. Now, we think of the law being the Ten Commandments, but in reality, the whole first five books of the Bible uh, are called the books of Moses. They're considered the law. He, he wanted them to build the structure of the nation of Israel by a system of laws because laws give us structure. And if there's any one thing that we all need in our life as Christians, it's structure. And we don't ever get the structure if we don't get the laws. And it's just that simple. A man who robs banks, a man who sells dope, a man who, <clears throat> I don't want to get too personal to some of you this morning, a man who, <clears throat> a man who lives his life completely outside <clears throat> whatever God wants you to do is a lawless man. <clears throat> he doesn't respect the law. And it winds up getting him in trouble at some point in his life. And a shout of God who doesn't respect the law? I was watching last night a, a movie on TV on, uh, called Public Enemy, and it's about John Dillinger. I've always been fascinated with John Dillinger. 
I'm fascinated with him because John Dillinger, when he was a child, went to Sunday school in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. And he was just a little guy, and he didn't have a lot of money, and he didn't have a lot of nice clothes. And he was dirty, and he went to Sunday school one morning, and one of the high prideful deacons told little Johnny that he probably ought not to come back to church uh, till he could get some decent clothes to wear. Well, little Johnny never went back to church, but little Johnny grew up to be the infamous John Dillinger. So I've always been kind of uh, taken by that and interested in, in that. And I watched last night in the books that I've read about him. Here's a guy who was completely outside the law. <clears throat> but he rationalized what he did. He was famous for what he did. He was looked at as the Robin Hood guy. He would go into a bank and rob a bank and take $80,000 and he'd be walking out and it'd be some old farmer that had his egg money there wanted to put in the bank laying on the thing and John would say, you keep your money. I don't want yours. I'm after the bank's money. Well, man, they loved him. And he actually got the place in his life where he had justified and rationalized his lawlessness so much that he thought it was just a way of life. You know, a lot of God's people do that with their life and the things in their life. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a common thing, you see. That's why we need laws. That's why we need structure. And, you know, in a historical application, that's what we have here. He's writing to a young man, Solomon, and obviously it's his son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, uh, who doesn't, uh, he only adds to the problems of Israel. The Bible uh, talks about uh, the fact that he literally destroys it. He splits the deal. You talk about a man who played the fool, it was Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was lawless. He forsook the law that God gave the Old Testament nation of Israel. So when we look at Proverbs, we know that historically... It's Rehoboam who forsook the law. When we look at it doctrinally, we know it's Israel as God's son who forsook the law. But when we put it into the practical application, which we want to focus on today, we know it's me and you as New Testament Christians and the importance of us keeping the law. So I want to, and I don't talk about the Old Testament, I'm going to talk about the laws in the New Testament. So I want to look at these, uh, at these verses and talk about the laws that applies to us. Now, I, you probably have never seen this before, but since we're talking about it today, the concept of the structure in the Bible is very, very important. The Bible is a book of laws. God is an orderly God. God has a structure to him. So when he wrote the Bible, the Bible is an orderly book that has a structure. So you'll find throughout the Bible seven legal precedents that the Bible says. Seven of them. If you went down to any law office or you went into any courtroom or you went into any judicial system, you'd find these seven exact same things in any court of law, in any country, uh, in any state, uh, in the world. So the Bible will follow some legal terminology. In the Bible, we have, I mean, I'm going to give you them and give you a definition of what they are, and you, you'll, you'll want these. The first one it talks about are laws. Raw, laws are rules of law that were given for our conduct. Then you'll come through the Bible and you'll find a word called statutes. 
statutes or laws <coughs> or regulations that are expressed formally in some kind of document. Then you'll find the term commands. Commands or orders giving, given with authority. You'll find the word that we talk about many times, the word precepts. Precepts or principles of a law that give us a rule of action. You'll find the word judgments. And judgments will always be written judicial decisions. When the judge finally hears all the evidence, he writes a judicial decision on whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent. That's a judgment. You have the word testimony. The word testimony is evidence to support a fact. <clears throat> so you have in your Bible an Old Testament, which you could basically say is the Old Testimony. And then you have the New Testament, which is simply the New Testimony. The Old Testament, the Old Testimony is facts to the nation of Israel. The New Testimony is facts to the life of Christ. Then you find the seventh one, the word ordinances. Ordinances are decrees or commands uh, within a, a, a statute of a law. And very clearly the Bible is based in every aspect on the rule of law, God's law. When we used to talk about America and its founding judicial system, they would call it Judeo-Christian. You don't hear it anymore, but for many, many years, it was Judeo-Christian. That simply means that our law system is built on Judeo, the nation of Israel, Christian, Christianity, the New Testament. And it's incredible. And the laws of God, I must say, will be absolute and affect everything that God that God has created. For instance, in the Bible, you will find seven universal laws. These laws affect God's creation in a physical way, and they, they affect man, me and you, in a spiritual way. And they're all tied into the Bible, which is the structure and the law of God for everything that God does. You know, the first one you find is the law of first mention. That's a law. It's an absolute law. And that's a great key because it simply tells us over and over again that the first time you find some key word or some key phrase, that uh, it will open up the rest of the Bible. It'll usually define it for you. You know, the first type of Christ you find in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And that's Adam with Eve. He's a type of Christ. He's a type of the church. You know that defined just about every aspect of your relationship with God if you study it out that way? First time you find the devil mentioned in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And right there, it defines him, the, how he's going to operate all the way down through history. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, it's the first time you find the word sin in the Bible. And you know what you have there? You have a complete definition. No guessing about it about sin in your life and my life and why it's there. It's incredible. It tells you that sin, sin is not something that you do. Sin is a door. Sin is a door. And it's a door that you decide to go through or you don't. It's all the 
find for you. Genesis chapter 22 and verses 2 and verse 7. You find the word love for the first time and you find the word lamb for the first time. And the greatest chapter in the Old Testament, if not the Bible, that shows you a picture of the Lamb of God and the love that God had for you and defined for us. Now you could go on or I could go on throughout the Bible and see this incredible law at work. At some point, as you grow, you need to mark them down, put them in your Bible. I point them out to you all the time on Thursday night or even on Sunday morning. They're absolutely invaluable. Now, I must tell you this, that they're laughed at. The idea of the, this first law is laughed at by scholarship today and by many, many preachers who don't accept the Bible as the Word of God. But, you know, so what? What has that got to do with the price of beer? It, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, the second law is the law of God's perspective. And that is simply Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And this is vital. It's simply seeing everything from God's standpoint according to His plan. Not looking at things in the natural, but looking things from God's standpoint in the supernatural. First time you find the Spirit of God in the Bible, and if you know anything about the Spirit of God, you know that everything in your life and my life depends on the Spirit of God leading and guiding you in your life. Many times we like to make comments that I'm being led by the Spirit of God, and in fact the Spirit of God isn't 10,000 miles around what you're doing. Because you have to go follow the laws, you see. There has to be some laws for that. Now, the first time the Spirit of God is found in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And when it says that, it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. First time you find the Spirit of God in the Bible, it's moving. And do you know that Spirit of God never stops from that point? It's always moving. And you know that when you really understand God's perspective, you'd be able to say where the Holy Spirit of God was at and what He was doing in 1918 B.C., 1000 B.C., 606 B.C., 90 A.D., 300 A.D., 1500 A.D., 1900 A.D., 1948 A.D., and even today. Because you have the perspective. The third one, very familiar one. The law of sowing and reaping, Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. That law is what you do, you will be held accountable for at some point, either here in this life or in the next life. You know, it's like Israel in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. We sow to the wind. Israel did. But the law of sowing and reaping, it's a law caught up with them. And they sow to the wind like a lot of people do. But you know what? They reap the whirlwind like you will do. Every issue that destroys a Christian's life and the life of an unsaved man will come back to this fundamental law. It's a law. It's the number one law in understanding why God people have the issues they have in this life today. In science, it's called the law of motion. The law of motion simply is for every forward action, there's an equal reaction. You shoot a shotgun and the bullet goes out, the kick hits your arm. You go out and live lawlessly, it comes back and kicks you, not necessarily in the arm, but it'll kick you. <laughs> The fourth one is the law of human collapse. And it's defined in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, 25. There's no king in Israel and every man doing what's right in his own eyes. And this is the law we see so much. Uh, and this is, contains the law of physics. The law of gravity. The law of first and second thermodynamics. The fact that matter can either be created or destroyed. The law of entropy. That things left to a random state decline. They don't get better. 
It's the view of science and their unbelieving, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and all of it goes along with it, trying to come up with another alternative. And, of course, the, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a great principle in a practical way because it simply says that if God does not keep injecting himself into man, man's finished. And I want to say something to you as a Christian. You want practical? Here's something very practical. The worst thing that could ever happen to you, sweetheart, the worst thing, young man, that could ever happen to you as a saved man is for God to take his hand off of you and let you go by yourself. Now the fifth one, the law of natural creation. This will be Genesis 1 and 2. Now these will be the law of science. And the Bible says that... that, uh, uh, the the the, uh, the true law of, of science is uh, is the word of God. First Timothy chapter six verse twenty says that the world has what they call a science falsely so called, and this will be the law of natural creation. An unsaved man that rejects this law in favor of the false teaching of evolution will not change nor stop this law. And the final analysis, it's simply this. They, uh, you know, everything around us got here by only one of four ways. I'll make things real simple. We don't have to get into the encounter theory, the nebula theory, the big bang theory. We don't have to talk about uh, the progression of evolution from the, from the primates up to all that. You know, I once was a monkey in a banyan tree and now I'm a professor with a PhD. We don't have to get into all of that stuff. <laughs> it's so simple. Either everything around you came from nothing or everything around you came from something that was already here. Which, by the way, those first two are completely against the first and second law of thermodynamics. The first and second law of thermodynamics says that nothing can come from nothing, and things left to themselves don't run up, they run down. Evolution will not work by the own lessons of, 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 of science. The third one is it came here by supernaturally, that's God. And the fourth one's my favorite. It really isn't here. We all just think it is. <laughs> and any honest, rational person could see the phoniness of everything just by looking at those three things. Now, the sixth one is the law of history repeating itself. This will be Job 2.8 and Ecclesiastes 1.9. And you've heard me say it many, many times. The only thing that men never learn from history is the fact they never learn anything from history. History will always repeat itself. Because the Bible is a, a complete circle in its history. And it's a history of laws. <clears throat> it starts in a garden in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. <clears throat> and it ends in a garden in Revelation 21, 22, and Ezekiel 36, verse 35. And it runs all history through a cycle. Because Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Now the seventh one will be the law of natural division. This will be Genesis 1, 4. This absolute law will <clears throat> show in every honor, everything that God does and every aspect of what he does. Genesis 1-4 says God divided the light from the darkness. And God's main function in light, I know it's contrary to everything you hear today in Christianity or spiritual things or churches for the most part, but his main function in life in the world will be to divide first before he ever tries to put anything together. That's what he does. 
In Genesis 1-4, he had to divide the light from the darkness. In Exodus chapter 12, he had to divide Israel from Egypt <clears throat> before he could make him a nation. When you got saved, Colossians 2, he had to divide your soul from your flesh before he could do anything with you. And when it comes to your life as a Christian, he had to separate you and divide you out from the world before he'd ever do anything with you as a child of God. Amen. He'll always divide first and separate, and then he'll put together. See Joshua chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Tremendous practical concept. But it's the law, see? Now these seven laws are absolute, and all other laws of science and physics, or man's life on earth, will be found within these seven. They're absolute. They're laws. Now I want to look forward for a moment. I want to show you how the laws work in your life and my life. Now, when God established <clears throat> the New Testament, he built the New Testament on three institutions. Two of them were already here. He added a third one. And all three of these have their own set systems of laws that they run by. The first one is marriage. Marriage is established in Genesis chapter 2, the definitive chapter on it for the structure and the laws of marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The second thing, a third, a second thing that was already established was civil government. Civil government was started back in Genesis chapter 10 verse 10 with the first Gentile kingdom. But in the New Testament, it's defined and laid out for you under a structure of laws that you and I are supposed to follow in Romans chapter 13. And the third institution, and this is the one that he added, was the church. And the church is defined in Acts chapter 8 through Acts chapter 20 in the book of Ephesians. And within these three, he established a set of laws in each one of them that will give man the ability to be fruitful and have his life as a fountain, Proverbs 13, if he follows the law. In, in government, for a nation to survive and not fall into anarchy, it has to be a nation built on laws. Our founding fathers knew this. I don't know how much you follow the, the debates that have been going on for the presidential campaign coming up next year, the Republicans or the Democrats. I like to watch them just for the instance that every once in a while you get a good joke that you can use on Sunday morning. Um, but but I, 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 I watched the last time the Republicans had it, and they were talking about the, the issue of immigration. Donald Trump has uh, made some tremendous statements. We have in our country, of the United States, over 12 million illegal aliens. And uh, I'm not talking about the ones that came back with Sequoia Weaver uh, in, in the movie. I'm talking about the ones that are here that are uh, here illegally. And it's a tremendous problem. And uh, believe me, I, I am not someone who wants to keep anybody out of America. But Donald Trump, whatever you may think of him, and, and I don't really care about him one way or the other, but I like when a man, I like to listen to somebody that every once in a while says something exactly what needs to be said. And he simply said this. We have to be a nation of laws. He says you have two million illegal aliens who are going through the process to become citizens. And he says to just wipe away the laws and write an executive order 
to let everybody who's illegal come in. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have an answer. His answer is to put them on buses and send them back. I don't think we have that many buses. <laughs> I, I'll be the first to tell you, I do not have an answer. I don't. I'm not sitting up here saying, oh, if I was president, if I was president, we'd all be in trouble. I, I, I have no answer. Very frankly, probably the answer is that it's impossible to fix, that we've gone too far over the cliff. That's probably the answer. But what he says is right. If you're not going to be a nation of laws, then you're going to be a lawless nation. And if you just get rid of this law because you want to let illegals in, who you'll think the Democrats who want them in are good guys, and then we'll get them to vote and we'll stay in office, and the Republicans are the bad guys because they want to send them back and follow the law so they won't get in. I understand your agenda and your motive, but that doesn't change the fact that if a nation is not a nation of laws, it breaks into anarchy. And this is the fundamental flaw that's leading this country down the sewer. Ignoring the law and the books to accommodate your own agenda because you're in power. And I'm not just putting that on the Democrats. I fully believe that if Republicans, they'd be doing something the same way. I don't like either one of them. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I don't get political. My vote is not for a Republican or a Democrat. My vote is for Jesus Christ to come back and fix this thing. That's my vote. I wrote it in one time and they never let me vote again since. And just so you don't miss the spiritual application here. When a church forsakes the law of God, which they have for now 30, 40 years... We talked about that last week, didn't we? So goes the church. So goes the family. So goes the government. When the salt, the church, loses its savor. When the salt, which is you and me, because we dump the laws and do it our way. When the church, the salt, loses its savor, then the world will lose its savior. It's just that simple. Now the Bible says if a man keeps the law, that he will be kept from the snares of death. And his life will, as a Christian, uh, uh, in his life will be uh, uh, a lot better off. And now in our lives as Christians, we need to have some personal laws that we govern our lives by. We should all be law-abiding citizens. Not necessarily like the guy in the movie. <laughs> and we all should be law-abiding Christians. We should follow and obey man's law, and we should follow and obey God's law. So based on this verse, in a personal way, I want to show you, for, from, from me, some laws that I have learned to follow, and I try to keep them. And I, I don't claim any success with the Lord or the ministry, whatever, but if I would ever have any success in life at all with God, I would tell you right now, it will simply go back to these laws that I saw the value of and put them into my life. Now, i got to say this, so I don't get you thinking that, boy, he's really got the law down. No, 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 let me say, I'm far from perfect in these laws. 
I want you to know, I will still do 90 miles an hour in a 70 mile speed zone of life. I wish I could say, I always follow the laws. But I will say this, when I don't follow them, I still know that they're the law, and I know that I'm always better off keeping the law than I am breaking them. I'm 65 years old. And life has taught me some lessons. Some were good, some were hard. But I try to learn from everything. And based on my 65 years, 45 of it being saved and in the ministry, my advice to you is the quicker you learn and apply these laws to your life, the better off you're going to be. Over the years, as God showed me these absolute laws of life, I wrote them down. Today, I have three or four notebooks completely full of them. And I just want to take some time this morning, based on Proverbs 13, about laws. And I want to give you a few of the main ones. These will form the basis of of the structure in your life. The beginning of it. And everything that I try to do in keeping these laws because uh, of their importance and in adding whatever I give to you today, probably a hundred more. You know what Paul said to Timothy? He told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2.15, and it's so true. He said, a man will strive for the masteries. A man will strive for the masteries. That means a man will get into church, get into ministry, do everything he thinks, do everything for God, and yet the Bible says he's not crowned. You know why? He didn't run lawfully. There's got to be some laws. You can't just decide you're going to do whatever you want to do. You've got to have some laws that you follow. You can't just decide to get on the freeway and drive 100 miles an hour when it's 55 zone. I mean, you can. You can't, you can't decide you're going to do whatever you... There has to be some laws. Running lawfully is such a foreign concept to most of God's people. You know why? Because we're in the book of Judges. We don't have any laws. And I told you Thursday night in our great study that somebody asked about the great study of Jonah. When Jonah went to get his own thing and he violated the law that God said go to Nineveh. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to Tarshish. I showed you how he picked up the tab. You know, there's a movie, and I can't remember. I get a lot of my sermons out of movies, by the way. I want you to know that. <laughs> and I can't remember the movie, but the classic line is, okay, boys, there's a new sheriff in town. And I want to tell you something. Some of God's people need a new sheriff in town today. Amen. They need to start keeping the law. Now, let's look at these quickly. Just give you a couple of them here. Law number one is the royal law. Now, in your Bible, you have a law called in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, the law of Christ. In James 2, 8, it's called the royal law. And in Galatians 5, 13, it's called the law of liberty. And it's simply this, not complicated. When the New Testament came into effect, God changed Colossians chapter 2, some things about the Old Testament and the New Testament. He did away with the Ten Commandments, Colossians 2, but Matthew twenty two forty says that he took the ten, boiled them down, reshuffled the deck, and took ten, did away with them, combined some things, and came out with two for the church. 
Now, these two are called the royal law, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. This law is the law that we as New Testament Christians should always follow. And there's simply two parts to it. You love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. Then you love other people like you love yourself. Now, you know, those two laws will just about take care of anything that you have to deal with in life. You wouldn't treat people as rotten as you do if you treated them like you treat yourself. Can you pamper yourself? You compliment yourself? I, when I was up in New York, there was this, I went into the restroom back there, up there, and there was this kid, nice looking kid, nice guy, tall, about 20, 21 maybe. And I was in there, and I, I figured, well, I'm here in Mel's old church. I'll do what Mel would have done because he did this many, many times. That kid is looking in the mirror, and he's combing his hair. You guys put some of the weirdest stuff on you. You know, back in the mountain man days, they put bar grease on them to keep the mosquitoes off. You use moose something. <laughs> so he was slicking it back and this and that. And then he got a brush up and brushed the sides, you know. And I thought I was sitting there myself, man, I remember I used to do that. <laughs> you know, they don't charge me for cutting my hair. They just charge me for looking for it. <laughs> Now he is there, he was so, it must have been five minutes, and in front of the sink, and I want to wash my hands, I want to get out of there. So he was all done, and he was all that, and I walked up behind him and went, <laughs> I said, I like it like that. I said, you're a good looking kid. He just laughed. Mel had done that to so many times, those guys that were primping in front of the mirror, it was hilarious. But you know, we wouldn't treat others the way we do if we really treated them the way we treat ourselves. Have you ever stop and think through a day's time how much we pamper ourselves? How much when maybe somebody tells us we're wrong, we just know we're right? I knew a guy one time that nobody ever thought he'd get married because he never found anybody to love him as much as he did. <laughs> And that, that's such a great two laws. You love God with all of your heart, with all your mind, your soul, but you love others as yourselves. You know, the ministry is people, and we need to, we need to, uh, you know, we need to reach people. You can't look at people through your, our prejudice or our social status or the fact that they irritate us, you know, that you don't approve of them. That's what got John Dillinger to be Johnny to John Dillinger. You have to see them as God sees them. God's perspective. Law number two. Writing people off just because you don't like them. That's as far away from God's character as you can get. And you know, when you understand those first two laws, you begin to understand that our job is, is loving people who are basically unlovable sometimes. And accepting them simply on the basis that the way God accepted you. You see, you can't love God with all your... This is the beauty of this, rule, this law. You can't love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and not know how wicked and rotten you are and why would ever God want to be with you. Amen. So then you get that and then you just look at somebody else that doesn't meet your criteria and you stop yourself before you start to put your foot in your mouth and you say, I must have looked just like that guy only 10 times worse when God first saw me. He was there for me. I'm going to be there for them. How easy that is. Law number two. And you've heard some of these before, but uh, these are the ones I want you to get. This is a practical thing here. Law number two, my law. Life is about the choices we make. 
making good decisions. There is no other absolute law in life than this one. The bottom line of all our problems. When people come in with issues, many times they're very complex. And I obviously can't fix them in a short period of time. Maybe six months or a year, I don't know. But I always like to give people a plan. A practical plan. That they, uh, you know, they don't need doctrine now. They don't need where to, they need a practical plan to get where they need to get. Even though at this moment in time, we cannot solve and fix your problems. And I always tell them, I can't fix your problems. But you need to get out of your problems. And I can't, we can't change many of these things. But let me tell you, we can change one thing tonight. Right now. That will begin the process of taking you out of the darkness into the light. You know what that is? Right now, tonight, let's stop making bad choices. Bad choices only takes one sometimes to ruin your life forever. I think of the story of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. You remember the guy who shot the kid down in, I think it was in Florida, last year, a couple of years ago. And, I, and I don't, I'm not taking sides in either case because I don't know anything about it much. I wasn't there. I have no judgment on either one of them. But I look at things like that, and when I see what I do see, it shows me the Bible principles that are great illustrations for me personally. And then I try to bring them and give them to you in a practical way. Now, Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin. There's no question about that. Whether Trayvon Martin jumped him, tried to grab the gun, or how, whatever, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Zimmerman was told by the 911 operator who was the authority and the police officer not to get out of the car and go after that kid. In that conscious moment of him defining the authority that told him to stay in the car, that one decision to get out of the car against the authority that said not to and pursue him changed his life forever. Changed his life forever. One who would think that just getting out of the car when somebody told you stay in the car? How simple is that? <laughs> who would think that fundamental, basic little choice would change a man's life forever? But it did. They say that Trayvon Martin, when he was walking around there and he saw that it was going to escalate, that he had several minutes to leave the area and avoid a conflict. He chose not to, and that decision cost him his life. One little seemingly unimportant decision can change our lives forever. It would be safe to say that you've never, you're never in any situation as a Christian by accident. 
probably true in, in every scenario, even with unsaved people. You are, you, are, you are in the situation because of a conscious decision that we make to do something that was either good or bad for us. The Bible is a book that will produce a wise man. The world will produce a foolish man. After 65 years of seeing this law in effect in many hundreds of lives, my own life, I've come to the conclusion for me that my number one goal is life. I'm not speaking for you. This law is real to me. I wish I kept it all the time. I don't. I wish I did. I wish I did. I got to wish I did. But my goal in life is to make as few bad choices and decisions that I possibly can. I want to quit going to Tarshish when God says, go to Nineveh. And once a man starts down the road of bad choices, brother, they pile on and up really quick. Stay with the absolute principles of the Word of God. Be a law-abiding Christian. Run lawfully. Law number three for me, my law. We are who we hang out with. This is an absolute law of human nature. You will, by law, Bible law, you will become who you hang out with. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth the seen of the scornful. Here's a man who quits walking with God. The first thing he starts doing is walking in the counsel of the ungodly. He starts taking counsel from somebody instead of God. Once he starts taking that counsel because he's walking with them, notice, he's now standing with them. And the Bible says he's in the way. He's becoming just like them. And then the last thing it says, he sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now he's not just walking with him or just standing with him. Now he's in a kumbaya circle. And he's scorning people and the things of God just like they are. My mom used to say, birds of a feather flock together. 100% true. You know why? It's the law. For me, my choices, I want people in my life who are going to make me better. Better today than yesterday. People who are positive on things. Not somebody who's always negative and talking about other people in a negative way. Lady one time years ago, she, just was, she would rag on everybody. And she'd always come to me and she'd say, oh, this person over here driving me nuts. And I finally, after about six months of it, I just, you know, I, I just lost it. I didn't lose it bad. I just simply said, I think your name was Marilyn. I said, Marilyn, is there anybody in the world you like? <laughs> they'll drag you in and they'll drag you down. The motto for our prayer groups, which some of you don't bother getting into, or some of you were in and got out of and don't come anymore. It's your own business. Excuse me for meddling. <laughs> I'm sorry. I quit from my practical approach and slipped into preaching for a moment. I'm out now. I'm back. I'm back. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Simply men of good laws, men of right values, Men with ironclad character will sharpen each other and we'll all keep our edge. I want to keep my edge. And there's some people who will dull your edge. Fourth law, moving through these. You've heard this one before. 
You can't solve problems with the same kind of thinking that caused those problems. Well, that's an absolute law that fits into all our lives in every situation we find ourselves in. When you want to fix an issue in your life, you can, you can blame it on anybody. You can say, well, you didn't give me what I needed, or you didn't help, or you didn't give me this first, and you didn't give me that, and you didn't give me this, or you didn't do that. You know what? You'll never change anything about the way you want to change till you change the way you think about it. And I have nothing to do with that. I give you 100,000 verses, but if you don't first fundamentally change the way you look at this thing, you ain't going to go anywhere. This is the, you talk about the prison system, and we have a tremendous problem in our prison system today. It's the illusion of putting somebody in prison for rehabilitation. Rehabilitation has nothing to do with locking somebody up and taking their freedom away. It may get your attention. But real change has to come about by the way you look at things that you've done and the things that you've done in the past and that you want to change. Change and rehabilitation starts with us, whether you're in prison or you're in church here this morning. It has to start inside of you. Me wanting to change how I think about this or that. I tell people all the time, you know, I don't care what your problem is. You may have some stronghold in your life. You may have drugs in your life. You may have alcohol in your life. And you may whine, 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 whine. I want to get out of it. I want to get out of it. I want to get out of it. And why I need your help and, you know, do this and do that and do that. Let me tell you something. You will never get out of whatever stronghold you're in till you see it and you hate it as much as God does. Everything else is just a dance. Law number five. And we talked about this Thursday night. We have to learn from our mistakes. That's a law. Because if you don't follow that law, you're going to keep making mistakes. The same one. A mistake can be a flaw in character. A mistake can be a lack of judgment on our part. Or even you try to do the right thing with somebody and it blows up in your face. I mean, you've all been in the ministry with me, for, and you know this one fundamental truth. In the ministry, people will burn you. In every church, there's places where they have matches that you can get. <laughs> and we all make mistakes. In life, it's never about, to me, dealing with people, it's never about the mistakes you make. I've never held anything against anybody. You know why? Because human beings do really dumb things sometimes. And you know what? I've done some really dumb things in time. And it's just the way that it is. Some Christians will hold some sin or bad choice against another Christian all their lives. You know what? Now, I understand if it's some perverted thing, you know, I, I get it. I mean, I can forgive somebody, but I may not want that person around or around into my family or everything. But I'm, not, I'm just talking about the good old-fashioned sins of the saints. Now, when I deal with somebody, I tell them, hey, I don't care what you've done, where you've been. I don't care what your past is. All I care about is where you're at today and have you learned the lessons of your mistake. No man on earth has a right to judge you or anything you've done in your life or where you have come from. All that I care about is where do you want to go from here? That's all that matters. And unfortunately, most people 
They won't learn from their mistakes. The lessons from the Bible are clear. The Bible is a great book, and I, and I love it. But you, you show me one man in that book outside the Lord Jesus Christ that just didn't make a major screw-up someplace in his life, probably in multiple cases. And I have no right to take somebody that comes into this church that has a problem or has this or has that. I need to look at them just as God looks at me and realize that they're just, I'm just as frail and fallible as they are. If it wasn't for the book that God gave me and the grace of God that God bestowed on me, I'd be in the same mess that they are. Why is that so hard for some of God's people to get to? It's the law. People who will learn this law and learn from their mistakes seldom will repeat them. People who never learn from them will be shackled to them all of their lives. I talked to you Thursday night about people that run a cycle in the church that they'll show up for three or four months and then they'll be gone for two years. And they'll show back up two years later for another three or four months. I, I, I you know, where they, they make fun of me for calling you Dijon, you know. But that's the most affectionate name I can have for you. He's Nickers. Because <laughs> it rhymes with Snickers. He's my buddy too. I put, I put names to people who I really like. I do. That's just me. I have a little pet name for everybody. <laughs> how are you, little man? I'll tell you something. I don't care how... Small, you stand up and see how tall you are, me. <laughs> you're a little, we're about the same height. You know what? In my mind, in my heart, you're 20 feet tall. <laughs> God, that's the worst aftershave I ever tasted in my life. <laughs> I read one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Bible says, listen to me now, there's one glory of the sun... Another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And then it says, as one star differs from another star in glory, so the resurrection of the dead. And I learned from that that all my little Christian people that I meet in life are like stars. You know, you go out on a bright, starry night. Right now, the brightest star you can see in the winter and the fall is the, is the star Sirius. It's magnitude four plus. It looks like a beacon in the sky. And you know, I got Christians in my church that are just like that. And then you get out there. You know, they rate stars by magnitudes. And the, the bigger the number, the dimmer it is. With a naked eye... Around here, you can probably barely see six magnitude stars. Maybe not even that. Maybe five magnitude. We get out in a real dark period, maybe you can go six. Got good eyes, maybe seven. Probably not. But, you know, I always looked at that and I thought to myself, I know Christians just like that. They should be bright and serious, but they're so dim and weak, you can barely see it. It says, as one star different from another star in glory... So also with the resurrection day. You know, you got what they call variable stars. You know what a variable star is? A variable star is the weirdest thing in the world. It runs a cycle of brightness versus dimness. In a month period of time, for 10 days, it may be 
third magnitude, and then for the rest of the month, it'll shrink all the way down to, you can hardly see it. And I look at that and I say, I know Christians like that. I know Christians that are up and down their whole lives. They're my little stars. They go along for a while and they're just as bright as can be and then they just variable down till you hardly can see them. You know, you got what they call supernova stars. You know what a supernova star is? That's a normal star for some reason begins to implode on itself and you may, you may, it may be so dim but it gets bigger and brighter and bigger and brighter and gets so bright that you can see it in the daytime sometimes. And then after it goes through, it's whatever it does, it starts to get dim again, and then pretty soon you can't ever see it anymore. I know Christians like that. I know some of God's people that used to come to church and they were on fire for God. And you know what? They began to implode on themselves because of the law. Now you don't see them anymore. I love comets. Comets are the greatest thing for me to study. I don't know what you know about comets, but comets are just nothing but dirt balls. <laughs> and they're a great type of Christian. Guess why? Guess why, William? Because we're dirt balls. And they follow an orbit. And what they do, you know, Cayley's Comet comes what? Every, once every 89 years, 85 years, something like that. And, you know, and the reason why it does is because it's on an orbit. Some of them come by the earth. They're not coming by for another 100 million years. Some come by every three or four years. Some come by every year. You just don't always see them. And, and, and what happens is, what happens is, is they start to come on their orbit, and the orbit goes around our sun all the way out to the solar system and gets what they call an Oort cloud. I know this is probably more information than you care about. And then the gravity of the sun pulls them back in. And I, I've looked at all of them stars, and mashed them up to all of them kinds of Christians. Because as the Bible says, as one star differed from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And I have my little comet Christians. They're on an orbit. They'll come to church for a couple of months. Don't see them. Back out to the Oort cloud. <laughs> Two or three years later, show up again. How you doing? Good to see you. Like you've always been here. Stick around for three or four months. Back out to the Oort cloud. I got one guy in particular for the last 10 to 12 years. You, he's, he just was here. and you, you, Because I never say anything. I'm going to go, hi, Mr. Oort cloud. It's so good to have you here today. I mean, I, I never say anything. I'm glad to see him. I love on him. I, I, I just hope that maybe this time some other pool on him will break his orbit. <laughs> Not this time. <clears throat> Gone again. Where's he at? Oh, I see his tail burning out there in the Oort cloud someplace. <laughs> These are people who will just never learn from their mistakes. Their life is chaos. I, I really feel sorry for them because it's a thing where how, how empty that must be. How, how defeating that must be. And yet, you know what? I can't do anything for them. I can't do anything for somebody till they want to start doing it for themselves. Well, law number six. We've got to move on through here. And this is a law here. You know this is true. You only get something 
out of what you're willing to put into it. I have people all the time, they'll say, well, my, my wife, she don't want to come to church because she doesn't feel like anybody's friendly. Well, my, my, we don't go to church because nobody ever speaks to us. Now, let me give you a law. May I give you a law? Yeah. Bible says, he that hath friend must show himself to be friendly. <laughs> Why are you waiting around for somebody to come up and say, can I be your friend today? <laughs> <laughs> You gotta, you only get out of something what you're willing to put in it. In, in this church, I've trained 150 plus people to help others in their struggles. We've had a people ministry for three or four years that I have went through, what? 500 practical applications at least to every problem that you either will have and I always tell you, you got to apply them to you first, and then you can take them and help somebody else with. And you know what? I get that so you could help people in their struggles, with their personal issues, their false religions, whatever they're dealing with. But you could spend 24-7 with them, and I could put all 150 people in their lives. I could go out and spend $10,000 on books and materials and tapes and seminars to send that person to. And I could, you could take up every moment of their day with people to help them. But listen, but until you decide to make the investment of your life into the things that can make a difference, it's a waste of time. You will only get out of something what you are willing to put, invest in it. People say, my kids are a mess. I need some help. Wife says, my husband's a bum. Put some guys with him to straighten him out. And I do that. I do that because that's my job to try to help people. But I must be honest with you. When we started our people ministry, you remember I gave you, what, 20 or 30 principles on one-on-one -on -one counseling? And one of those principles was, you can't make somebody do right that doesn't want to do right. And you can't want it more for somebody than they want it for themselves. Now that's a counseling rule. That's not something that you apply maybe out on the street or wherever you're going at work. That is a bona fide one-on-one -on -one counseling process. That's the law. Hey, I've seen it. All right, you go to the doctor, you got cancer. Doctor says, we caught it in time. You go, wow. I am glad. Doctor says, here's what we got to do if you want to be 100% recovery. There's a place in St. Louis that you got to go three times a week for chemo treatment, and they are absolutely the best in the world specialist on your type of cancer. You go there, and they have a 99% cure rate for where you're at. You know what? You will be there three times a week with bells on. Your marriage is a mess. Your kids are a mess. You're a mess. You sit down with me and I say, you need to be here Sunday morning, Thursday night, and get somebody in your life. And you know what? You don't do any of it. You know, it's not important to you. You can't find the time. But boy, if you had cancer, you'd get the treatment. But when it's a cancer in your soul, you'll pass on the treatment. 
It's not just changing the thought pattern, but you need to reprioritize what you're doing in your life. Your value system is screwed up. In dealing with people, you, you, you come to people that their marriages are a mess, their kids are a mess, their families are a mess, their ministries are a mess, their whole lives are a mess. You know, we deal with the people in the few and, and, you know, we want to start that counseling of really working with them in a practical way to help them get the victory in their life and get everything that they need. And sometimes, you know, I just let it go because I'm in charge of that aspect, so I'll correct it. But we get the idea from sometimes the guys that have done with it that these are special problems that, that you don't really understand. Let me tell you something. I don't care if you've got some symptom, syndrome from being in war or you've got some satanic hold on you down here. You know what? You've got your problem the same way, and it's the same way you're going to get out of it in either case. There is no elective that this is a special problem. But that's what we do. And when you tell people you've got a really specialized problem, then people with problems think they're really specialized. When you've got just somebody and say, you know, your problem is simply because of the fact that you're not doing what's right. I don't care what war you were in or how many you were in or whatever you're going through or how many people you saw die. I'm sorry about that, but you know what? The same Bible that fixed the drunk is the same Bible that will fix your problem. And it's never the issue, is there anything we can do? Oh, I hear that all the time. You know, oh, uh, Bob, I'm going through the, is there anything that I can do? No, that's never the question. The question is, will you do what you need to do? Change what you need to change. Start aligning yourself with the laws of God that will make you better. The laws that as an absolute sun coming up in the morning. And then I'm going to give you this last one and I'm going to be done. I got nine, I got 600 more here, but we don't have time this morning. (laughs) The law of the judgment seat of Christ. Someday, because of the law that God wrote in his Bible the way he did, a judge is going to make a judgment decree on every unsaved man at the great white throne judgment and every saved man at the judgment seat of Christ. You won't need a lawyer because the Holy Spirit of God will be the prosecuting a witness and there's no lawyer who can ever stand up to him. God will have all the facts and he'll have them right. There won't be any of your side of the story. He'll have the whole story because he was inside you and he saw and heard everything that you did, every rationalization to get outside the law of God to do your own thing. Then you and I will stand before God and we will give an account and there will come down a judicial decree of judgment. It's the law. A number of years ago, when I had just gotten right with God, and I was at the Canton Baptist Temple in Ohio, and all of you know that Mel Shabaka was my mentor and my father in the Lord. He taught me the doctrine that I know and taught me how to build the practical things of the Bible onto it. But the issue of the Bible came up. It had been brewing for a while. Now today the phony Bible that we're all up against is called the NIV. The Nutty International Version. (laughs) Back then it was the ASV. 
being right with God would grip me from telling you the acronym for that one. Back then, the pastor of the Canton Baptist Temple was a, a man by the name of Dr. Harold Henniger. Anything I'm about to say here is not a criticism of Dr. Henniger. He's dead now. But I learned a lot from him, and he was good to me. But the facts are the facts. And if we can learn from the mistakes of another, even though he never learned from them, then we're all better off. Harold Henniger was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. J. Frank Norris was the Texas tornado who basically single-handedly preserved all that we have today. Every Baptist church back in the 60s and the 70s that was a hardline Bible-believing Baptist church came out of J. Frank Norris's school. Back in the 1940s and the 30s, even up into the 50s, he had the only school in the whole world that on their marquee going around their building, which was about four city blocks like they do at Times Square, was we are the only church who believe the King James 1611 as the authorized version is God's word, and it was lit up 24-7. And he trained some of these young men. Harold Hedinger, Ronnie Cannon, Wendell Zimmerman, Dallas Billington. He had an impact in everybody's life. Well, Mel Sabaka had met Dr. Ruckman. This is even before my time. And Dr. Ruckman, and Mel was struggling with some things about the Bible. He was going to Kent State University, getting a degree in philosophy while he was working at the church. And he was headed down the wrong road. And the old krauthead German got a hold of him. And that thing changed Mel's life. And from that point on to the day he died... He held the banner high for the Word of God. He was the charge of all the youth at the Canton Baptist Temple. Harold Henniger was one of J. Frank Norris's boys. Mel was one of Ruckman's boys. There was a music director there that his name was Bob Johnson. He was one of Bob Jones University's boys. They were the greatest enemy of the Word of God in that day. I don't know where they're at now. I mean, I'm not sure they're any better, but they were the worst enemy of the Word of, Word of God in anything. They ruled the roost. And where J. Frank Norris had turned out boys who believed the Bible, Bob Jones University would take the offspring from those boys, take them down in Bob Jones University and destroy them. Joe, am I not telling the truth? Because Joe went to one of those places for a while, didn't you, Joe? You didn't last very long down there, did you, Joe? How long did you last at place? A semester. I love you for that, Joe. That is why you are my hero. If a man like Joe, who's just a common, ordinary guy, I, you probably got kicked out not only because you saw it was stupid, but you were just so blatantly honored that they had to get you out of there, probably. And I love you for that. I love you for that. Don't change. But he knows what that system is like. So we had a clash. Harold Henniger was a good man, but he was a weak man. Mel was going toe-to-toe with Dr. Henniger one time. And let me just stop here and say this. 
in Christianity today? Be careful of pastors who like to tote the fact that they're a doctor. I'm just passing it out to you. Guy would say sometime, well, it don't really mean anything. Then why you put it on the front of your name? <coughs> and they put it on the front of their name. Don't kid me. I've been in this business a while. You may be the nicest, most spiritual guy in the world. But you like the aspect that you got that DR in front of your name. You got to be careful with that. And I, you know, I, I just... I just observe things. I've been around this thing. I know a guy who is one of the most Bible-believing guys on the planet. And I love him to death. But if you were in his church, you would not call him by his first name. You would not call him pastor. You would not call him preacher. He demands that everybody calls him Dr. So-and-so. Now, you know there's fundamentally something wrong with you if you've got to have that stuck in front of your name all the time. Now, I know why they do it. Because many times they get in a situation, and it can be a little intimidating. When you've got to go into a bar fight someplace, and you've got a, a spiritual bar fight, excuse me, and, and, and you've got the doctor degree in front of your name, it kind of gives you a little edge because the person you're up against, if they're not a doctor... And, and they all stick together. I mean, you know, I, I think back of the, uh, the, uh, the Desi, uh, Lucy and Desi Arnaz old things. They once had a little thing on there where they dressed in cowboy outfits. And they'd, one of them come out and he'd say, You see by my outfit that I am a cowboy. You see by my outfit, other guy, that I'm a cowboy too. Third guy. You see by our outfits that we are all cowboys. You get you a cowboy suit, and you can be a cowboy too. That's where it comes from. You get your doctor degree, you'll be like us. And we're, we're better. And I don't care if a guy says, well, that's not me. Now, why is it in front of your name? And you think when you go into a spiritual fight that it gives you a little edge over the person that, because they don't have one. And that's your little edge. I never wanted an edge like that. You know what I'd rather do? I'd have no doctor. I mean, giving me a doctor degree is like eating whipped cream on an onion. Anyhow. <laughs> but but I, I would never take one. And I never put a doctor degree in front of my name. You know why? Because I wanted to go like this. I want you to think I don't know anything. And when I rip you a new one and you've got nothing left to stand on, you're going to walk out of there saying, I picked a dog, dog in that fight. <laughs> That's what I want. I don't want to give you any warning or even give you an idea. I want to look as dumb as you think you want me to be. And then you will bleed all the way home. <laughs> so be careful with that. And that's what got Harold Henniger. He got his doctor degree from Bob Jones University. He never earned it. It was an honorary degree. And those guys would pass out honorary degrees like I give you popcorn. And once they gave you the degree and you got the notoriety of doctor this and doctor that, then if you didn't jump through their hoops, they would take it back from you. Oh, I know the system, man. And Mel said one time, and I was in the meeting, 
Now, they were going toe-to-toe. Bob Johnson was there. Harold Henniger was there. Mel was there, and I was there. And I'm not even sure how I got into it, but I was there. And Mel was mad. And he had come to the end of this thing, of, of him trying to teach the Bible to these boys, and Bob Johnson trying to tear down and send these kids off to, to Bob Jones University to destroy them. And it was a hot deal. And when Mel got hot, he could say words that I wouldn't be able to say from the pulpit. But oh, I wrote them down, and I will use them from time to time because it can be. It may not be good English, but boy, it's great communication. <laughs> now he was going off, boy, and old Bob Jones, old Bob Johnson's over here in the corner. He's a little mousy guy, anyhow. And Harold, he didn't know what to, what to do. I mean, he couldn't know whether to sit up, sit down, or wind his watch. He was just, old old Mel was just going off. And Mel looked at him and he said, "Harold, my God, Harold." My God, Harold, if it, this is just the way he said, My God, Harold, if that is God's book, what are you going to do at the judgment seat of Christ? And Harold Henniger said something. I've never heard Mel speechless. Never in all my life. Never heard him speechless. But he was speechless that day. Harold looked at him. He says, well, Mel, I guess I'm just going to have to take my chances. It's the law. And you know, when it comes to the things of God today, I know we all had a movement of, but you know what? That's exactly the position of most of God's people today. There comes a day that a judgment will be levied against us. And it'll come down as a judicial creed based on God's law by the almighty judge himself. And it will be based on the very laws that I've talked to you about today and all the ones that I didn't have time to talk to you about today. It'll be about whether we ran the race lawfully by the book or unlawfully outside the book. Psalms 13, 14, 15, and 16 are some of the most practical material that you'll ever get out of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is one of the reasons why I did it. It's one of the most practical books that you're ever going to get. Oh, it's got a lot of doctrine in it. And we talk about doctrine because without the practical stuff of the Word of God being embedded in the doctrinal stuff, you're wasting your time.